Speaking of Mississippi is produced by the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and made possible by the John and Lucy Shackelford Charitable Fund of the Community Foundation for Mississippi. From the port of Charleston, the main point of entry for many enslaved Africans, through Dr. King's Atlanta and Fannie Lou Hamer's voter registration efforts in the Mississippi Delta, the story of the U.S. Civil Rights Movement stretches across many states. A new book, U.S. Civil Rights Trail, a traveler's guide to the people, places, and events that made the movement, chronicles, in the author's words, the black presence and contributions to this country. Welcome to Speaking of Mississippi, we will explore the landmark moments and overlooked stories of our state's history. I'm Chris Goodwin. Our guest today is the writer Deborah Douglas, whose family roots lie in Chicago, Detroit, and Memphis, and whose book has connected the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s to the current era. Deborah, you were a writer, but you were not a travel writer when you got tapped to do this book. How did you come to write the U.S. Civil Rights Trail Guide? Well, I had never written a travel book before, but I wouldn't say that I wasn't a travel writer Mm -hmm. because I am a jack-of-all-trades journalist Mm -hmm. and I do what's necessary. Mm -hmm. So I do the light lifestyle stuff. I uh, actually reintroduce lifestyles coverage into the Chicago Sun-Times, and I do the heavy-duty stuff, like writing about weapons of mass destruction. (laughs) You have a varied background in journalism. You spent time here in Mississippi. I did, yes. I didn't know I would end up starting my career in Mississippi. After I graduated and I'm dating myself in 1989, I traveled around the country as part of an internship program. Mm -hmm. I spent four months in a different city. uh, Every, you know, I moved every four months. So I worked in Kansas City, the Detroit area, and outside of New Haven, Connecticut. And after that, I couldn't find a job, but I cast a wide net and Memphis was actually on my top 10 list. And I talked to the managing editor and he was like, um, well, why don't you come down for an internship? And I'm like, um, I've had seven of those. I need a job. <laughs> right. So Back then, internships didn't pay either. Now you yeah, get paid. I, I always got paid for my internships, which oh. is how I ended up being in print and not television yeah. because television never paid. I'm, I'm a striving child, so yes. I never had that opportunity. But. Uh, So I went to Memphis. I took the internship. He's like, you never know what might happen. And I had a great time. I learned a lot. And uh, they were going to extend it. They couldn't hire me. They didn't have a position, but they would have extended it. Or my editor, he was dating the city editor at the Clarion Ledger, and he talked to her for me. And I came down and interviewed and got the job. I ended up covering Madison County, which is actually where my father is from. Yeah, yeah. So you you had family roots here in Mississippi. You came back and sort of by accident took the same region that, that your family was from. Um, you lived and worked at various times in Chicago, in Memphis, and Detroit. Yes. How do those... How, what are your memories of those cities and how do they, how do they, how do they, how are they similar and how are they different for you in your recollection? Yeah, I have a complicated relationship yeah. <laughs> with these places. Yeah. Um, Memphis actually was born in Chicago and started school in Detroit. But at a certain point, I moved to my grandmother's house in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. So I had some experience being in Tennessee by the time I got to Memphis for my internship. 
And um, it was really great being in Memphis as an adult. I yeah. just have to say that. And um, the the commercial appeal is um, a Scripps paper, and it was doing very well at the time. Yeah. It had great editors, so it was a, just a top had they experience. Just, had they just vanquished the press scimitar at that point? Um, I think it had been gone before yeah. then. Yeah, but it, it did all the things. Yeah. And um, Detroit, I say I have a complicated relationship with because that's where my mother went after she split from my dad. And like I said, I started school in post-uprising Detroit. So, like, I didn't know what that was about, but I knew something was in the air. Right. So I had these radical teachers. I had this radical Jewish teacher, Mr. Barish. He never taught us from a book. We had books. We never read the book. He only taught us the Holocaust. He, we, we would go to class every day, all day, and he would talk about the Holocaust all day long. Wow. The way you got a grade is that you had to do research and you had to write papers. Yeah. And I was prolific. So you, you can't help but get better at your logic and reasoning and, right. and your curiosity yeah. when you're writing papers about different cities, states, and places around the nation. And because I went to public school and we didn't have art, you got extra credit for illustrating right. your papers. So I had lots of A papers posted all over the wall in Mr. Barish's classroom. And uh, I had him two years because they didn't have enough room for me in uh, fourth grade. Mm -hmm. So I went to fifth grade a year early, but it was kind of like, under undercover, illegal, mm -hmm. and not official. So I had to do fifth grade again. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, that was not. It was not smart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you sort of had a, a reverse grade migration journey from Chicago, Detroit, to Memphis. Yeah. So you know, it's um, at the time my mom she remarried, and she married a complicated man, mm -hmm. and he. Um, he also developed um, a fatal disease um, early in their marriage. But she she's Christian, and so she was committed to living out her vows, even though he was very difficult and abusive also. Um, and, you know, they worked through that for a few years and kind of got control of that. But, you know, where the violence dissipated, still there was always tension in the air. And as I was getting older, moving into middle school, um, the tension, you know, came back on me. So she decided to let me go live with her mother to, so I could just live and be free and yeah. just grow without being exposed to all of that tension. And she stayed with her husband and their two little kids. And she managed working in his illness and trying to create a sense of normalcy for their little kids together. Yeah. So it was a sacrifice. And, but it was beautiful because I got to reconnect to the Southern Matrix I went to my mother's church. I got involved in the kind of activities that she was involved in when she was a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, many of her old teachers either taught at my school or were, uh, were members of our church. And so now I'm inculcated in this community. They're like, you know, they're like, Debbie this and Debbie that. Like, they know me because they can look in my face and see right. my story. Right. And so that means you couldn't get away with anything because <laughs> all these people are always all up in your business. But yeah. But they also loved you like a community loves you. But they knew all your people. Yes. So they could, yeah. <laughs> yes. It, 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 it was easy to jerk check. Yeah. Yes. And I'm now I'm really, really grateful for that experience because I see people who only have a Southern experience or only have a Northern experience. Yeah. And they don't really get, get the, the how everything connects that I feel like I get when I look at just 
the public conversation and issues play out. Yeah. And especially in a northern context, they have they they do what I call deficit framing, mm-hmm. defining the South by one bad thing or a series of bad things, never looking at the South in full mm-hmm. in a three dimensional way um, that takes into account who Southerners get up and strive to be every day of their lives. And I would posit that we all get up every day to be better than we were the day before. Yeah. And so I've had some tense conversations with people when they make this assumption about who they think Southerners are. And um, and I think I'm I'm Northern and Southern, like I'm this amalgamation. I say that I'm a Northern girl with Southern sensibility. Yeah. Well, and and how do you think that helped prepare you to write this guidebook? I mean, you traveled around. Mm-hmm the South and the North and yes. you wrote about it and you, um, you really brought your own particular perspective. to I it. did. I wanted the, to write the kind of book that, that did not write for the white gaze It's a book for everybody, right. but it's not through the white gaze. Yeah. And very often travel books are like that. Very, uh, very many narratives are through the white gaze. Right. And so when you're talking about the black experience, very often you're talking about having to almost dumb down the, the story um, or start it at a more basic place and then ramp back up to go back and get that audience. I assume that you're invested in the story and that you have a level of con- cultural competency. And especially if you're living in the South, these are your neighbors and hopefully maybe some of your friends. Yeah. And so I'm going to rely on you to catch up. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to reflect certain kinds of experience that experiences that black people have that never get reflected in narratives. So even down to when I talk about the little shampoo bottles mm-hmm. in the uh, hotel, I talk about the fact that if you're going to wash your hair on the road, then you might want to bring your own shampoo because they don't ever give us enough shampoo to wash black hair. It's enough for mine. But that's, yeah. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> or, um, you know, I did not write for white comfort either. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so much of the narrative or the narration of the civil rights story is written in a way so white people can feel good about what the good white people did at that time. And, um, and th- that's true. <laughs> but it does not absolve society at the time for the way they were implicated in creating the situation that created the mid-century civil rights movement. The Museum of Mississippi History tells the story of the state from 15,000 years ago to the present, while the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum concentrates on the years 1945 through the mid-1970s. But no single site can fully tell stories with the breadth and depth of these. That's why both museums point visitors interested in learning more about particular people or actions to dozens of sites across the state. For instance, in the Museum of Mississippi History's Gallery on Mississippians in the Military is a sign about Hattiesburg's African-American Military History Museum. Visitors to the Juke Joint exhibit will find information about the Delta Blues Museum in Clarksdale, and in the Soul of the State Gallery, information on William Faulkner's Oxford home, Roanoke. Visitors to the Civil Rights Museum will see signs for places to learn more, such as the Civil War-era Corinth Contraband Camp and the Ida B. Wells Barnett Museum in Holly Springs. I I love the quote that you showed at your presentation earlier today. Um, Was it from Maya Angelou? Yes. 
It's a um, from a picture on the side of the Legacy Museum in Montgomery that I took. And the quote says, History, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived, but if faced with courage, need not be lived again. Yeah. That's an excellent guiding light to follow when, right. you're, when you're doing the sort of work that you were doing on this trail guide. I mean, that, that, that really frames it. For folks who have not seen the book, what's it like? Well, it's, um, I follow the official civil rights trail in the South. It was designated in 2018 by a group of tra- Southern travel offices, and they painstakingly researched the, the Southern civil rights trail and uh, designated several places um, in, in the South. But I couldn't travel to every place, though, sure. because it would be a really big book. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so I had to figure out how do you capture the narrative of the mid-century civil rights movement and a handful of places. And so I needed some foundational material that I needed to cover some, you know, some high points, mm-hmm. well, often low points. Um, but I need to, needed to uh, make that connective tissue. Mm-hmm. I needed to cover activism. I needed to cover legal. And then because this is a travel guide, I needed to uh, in- integrate, you know, opportunities to um Engage in the lifestyle of the communities or or be entertained because yeah. it's a journey, right? Right. And so I tried to create a cohesive narrative arc by starting in Charleston, actually. Charleston, South Carolina. Right. It's not – Charleston is not so foundational because of the civil rights movement, but bec- for the reason why black people in the, are in this country today. Right. right. It was a major port for enslaved Africans. And, um, and enslaved Africans had – prodigious skill in cultivating rice. And so they contributed to the wealth of that area, which is um, emblematic of our contribution to the entire country. Mm-hmm. Our skill, our knowledge, our actual bodies were the capital that built this country. And that's something that gets really underplayed in the public conversation. And in my opinion, a lot of what this anti-critical race theory brouhaha dog whistling is about is really to um, lessen the 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 telling of the black presence and contribution to this country and sometimes I in particular with the rice I mean the contribution for too many people becomes, picture of uncle ben on a box yeah yeah it gets it gets reduced to what i call a deficit frame this one thing is not the full story but then i had to go to other places so you know yeah i gotta have atlanta first of all you know dr king's story starts there uh you have the atlanta student movement you have a burgeoning middle class there like so many things about atlanta you gotta go to alabama Mm -hmm. uh selma the children's crusade the birmingham campaign uh, you got to go to Montgomery, the Montgomery bus now boycott. you really have to go to Montgomery. You really yeah. do have to go to Montgomery. It's so much there yeah. between uh, the Rosa Parks Museum and the Legacy Museum right. and um, the lynching memorial. And, and there's so much history from before mm-hmm. all of that. Um, you got to go to the Mississippi Delta, yeah. right? Um, Emmett Till's murder was a catalyzing force of the mid-century civil rights movement. You get Fannie Lou Hamer up there, right? 
you got to come to Jackson. You got to come. You got to do the that march from Memphis down right. here, right? That's right. Um, walk against fear. Yeah, exactly. Uh, James Meredith, um, and then Little Rock is key because it was a test of whether Brown was real or not, mm-hmm. right? And then I go to Farmville, Virginia, because that case was rolled up into the Brown decision, and it was such a small community that was precipitated by the organizing of students. Mm-hmm. So that's really important. I go to Durham and Richmond and, of course, all roads lead to Washington, D.C. Right. Because you got Congress where the laws are made. You got the Supreme Court. Yeah. And then D.C. has its own very unique civil rights story. And it has a very unique story about the black experience. Mm-hmm. So did you see regional characteristics that sort of differentiated those you know, parts of the trail? And, and also what were the the threads that tied everything together. Well, yeah, I noticed class differences. Yeah. And so as I was doing my research, trying to figure out a way to uh, massage the content down into something that was accessible, digestible, but also authoritative, Mm -hmm. I had to consider, you know, what were the conditions of a particular community at a time that they were protesting or agitating or seeking legal redress in a particular kind of way. So I had to kind of thread that needle. You know, um, Black people in Atlanta had same concerns as Black people in the Mississippi Delta, but their social condition was vastly different from each other. And so that that's just an opportunity to show how Black people are not a monolith, right? right? And that's another sort of like one-dimensional narrative tool that often gets employed, but mm-hmm. I got a chance to break out of that framework. You were writing this book really before the pandemic hit and yes. into the pandemic. Do you think it would have been different at all if you had written it after the George Floyd murder the 2020 pandemic summer and and all the things that happened? Um, I don't know, because we're still in the pandemic. Yeah, right. <laughs> but George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, all of that was popping off at the same time as I was writing. So I do capture a sense of that um, in this in the book. And I include resources because my assumption is that there's a huge swath of the population that um, has been convicted by what happened in 2020, mm-hmm. and they want to be better and mm-hmm. do better. And so, yes, this is a book about travel and enjoyment, but it's also about learning and confronting your uh, assumptions about who you are and why you are and how you are. Yeah. So what do you like about having a physical book? a tangible book instead of online resources. Online resources are lovely, but yeah, it's just... I can't wait to write another book. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, writing in a pandemic was grueling. Mm. Um, I think I broke things. (laughs) But um, to be able to have something that I can touch and feel and to have something that has shelf life feels really great, especially coming from daily news. Yeah. When you're just like, you know, you wake up in the morning and you don't know what you're going to face. You know it's going to be an adventure. Yep. Something's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But um, but it can be so ethereal. And part of, you know, when you're in the business for a long time, part of my frustration about being in the trade is the feeling of, 
you know, things just dissipating so quickly and not being able to grasp something tangible that you've created and put out into the world. And I don't have any children, so this book is my baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Did you find that you had to um, make different judgments about what to include, being that it was a guidebook? I mean, it needs to be something that isn't the size of a desktop dictionary. Yeah, so I don't I'm not a historian. I am not a trained historian, all due respect to historians. But what I realized is that of course I was going to infuse this book with my um my point of view about the world um and my personality. Yeah. Um I was the deputy editorial page editor at the Chicago Sun Times and I wrote a column, so I got attitude. <laughs> but um I realized going um, sort of like early on as I was starting to craft the first chapters that I needed more information and more kinds of information. Mm -hmm. And so I had to painstakingly create these timelines so people could know where they were. So every city or region has a very particular kind of civil rights story. Mm -hmm. And the way the story gets told is like this, it's told in one big bite. And you really don't understand the nuances unless you really understand what was going on in the Delta or what was going on in Ruleville or what was going on in Jackson or the peculiarities of a Selma versus a Montgomery. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the timelines took a a long time to put together because I had to validate things. And I was uh, looking at primary sources, many, many private primary sources. And sometimes things didn't add up. And whenever I could, because the beautiful part about this history is that a lot of these people are still alive, I would literally go to the source, the people who were there, to try to continue to validate. But sometimes I couldn't get things to add up in a timely manner. And that vexed me. And I had to figure out ways to make sure that I was telling the truth. And then I became aware of the fact that even historians or people who value the story have agendas. And so I found myself in many cases sussing out, okay, what's the agenda of this person or this organization and putting this information together in this way? And I tried to like, like really weed it out and just really focus, you know, ruthlessly on the truth. And I think I kind of got on my editor's nerves a little bit because she's like, hurry up. And I'm like, no, not until it's right. Yeah. 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 I don't know who you think you're talking to. Yeah. Writer's <laughs> got to stand up for the story. If the writer's not going to stand up for the story, who is? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, speaking of standing up for the story, how important was it to have a black woman write the U.S. Civil Rights Trail Guide? Yeah. Well, uh, most travel writers are not black, black writers. Yeah. Um, and... When you think of like high profile travel writers, I can't, no one black person comes top of mind. It's a privileged opportunity that is only given to a few people. And a lot of people at the top of that heap are white men. And God bless them because I love me some Rex Steves. But, um, you know, they, they do great work, but they're not the only people who are capable of narrating these stories. And so it was not only um, proper that I be the one to write the story, it was necessary. 
it's important for a person who is uh, grounded in the story. I belong to the story. This is my story, my family story. And it's the most authentic point of entry into the story to have a person like me write the story. Not all travel writers are journalists either. So I think that my book benefited from my journalistic training. Mm -hmm. I did everything I could to find people who were active in the movement and interviewed them and included their voices in, in the book um, and profiles or quotes or any way I could. It is not lost on me that this generation is getting older and older. And it was me an expression of love to be able to give them a platform to speak one more time. Mm -hmm. Who were some of the people that you met and, and made relationships with that really stick with you? Sybil Hampton. She's in Little Rock. And she was, she doesn't like for me to say this, but she's like unofficially the Little Rock 10 mm -hmm. <laughs> because there was a Little Rock 9. And then the next year they closed all high schools in Little Rock. And then the next year, 1959, th they tried integration again. And Sybil was with her brother was in that group that integrate Little Rock Central High School successfully. And, um, and I met her, she was introduced to me <laughs> and uh, she picked me up. She took me places. She she became like an auntie to me. Mm. And I legitimately like just hanging out with Sybil, <laughs> um, eating eggs <laughs> and or talking about books or just um, I still call her. I still try to maintain that connection because I feel like she's family. She's a brilliant woman, um, got her Ph.D., um, uh, worked in higher education. Mm -hmm was the head of the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation at one point. It's just done amazing things. And it's just, especially at this point in my life, so wonderful to be able to connect with people who've done all the things. Yeah. Um, and then there was uh, Abraham. Oh, okay. Calvin Woods, Reverend Calvin Woods. He and his brother, Abraham, were active in the movement. But Reverend Calvin Woods, I met him when I went to Birmingham. and He was giving a tour in Kelly Ingram Park. And he broke out in song. And I ran over and I recorded it. And so um, I found a way to get introduced to him down the road. And I had several conversations with him. So I'm asking um, Reverend Woods, how did the Alabama movement the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights, uh, founded by Reverend Fred Lee Shuttlesworth, how that got founded, like what was like the behind the scenes action on it? You know, if you look at history books, they'll tell you it was founded at some time at Sardis Baptist Church, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. I'm like, but where was the meeting before the meeting? Because it's always a meeting before the meeting. <laughs> and he was he was saying that um, A.G. Gaston had a had a place for them to, to meet. He was a black millionaire businessman. Mm -hmm. And um, he did a lot of behind the scenes support material and financial support of the movement. And so he's saying they're in this room and they're talking about we got to do something. Now, the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights exists because in Alabama at that time, the NAACP has been outlawed. Mm -hmm. It's that whole, we now won't know outside agitators nonsense that they were on. So <laughs> so they're in this room. They're taking the chance because NAACPs have been run out of the right. state. They're, they want to start something new and they're th together. So I'm like, uh, Reverend Woods, I'm like, who was there? Like, um, 
what kind of people? Were they professional people, working people? Were there any women there? Mm -hmm. Did the women say anything? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. I don't know how they did things back then. <laughs> and he, at a certain point, I was being so specific about trying to find out who was in that room. And he wasn't telling me. He was like, just hold up. Don't nobody need you to know who was with, with where, <laughs> when, why, and how. You need to back up. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> and he was like, you know, he, was, he explained that they were taking a great risk. And so word was buying then. And it's 2022 and word is still buying. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. When you were doing your research on this book, did you come across any stories, maybe stories that were even new to you, that you wished could have a more developed site, museum, location that, that told that story for, for travelers? Um, there is always so much more to be done. Um, up in the Delta, there are two Emmett Till museums. Yeah. There is one in Glendora. And, um, you know, I met the mayor of Glendora and I've, you know, learned about the backstory of Glendora and, um, I got a story about the need for reparations in mm -hmm. Glendora. And so it's like, you know, you, you pick at one thing and you find so many other deeper stories about injustice and the need for repair. And so I just want like the Glendoras of the world to be able to thrive and get what's coming to them, to get that cash flow to flow back to them the way it should have. And so they can learn and grow and thrive the way they, we should always should have been able to. So what, what do you hope that the folks who read the book, get from the book? What do you hope stays with them? Well, I think for people who are excited about American history, even though we're in a weird time now, but I'm still like excited about what we can accomplish in this country. And I think a lot of people are. I mean, a lot of people are patriots um, in the best sense of the word, mm -hmm. patriot. And I think for people who love learning about history or American history, I think that they will find that this is a really engaging way to learn more about a particular aspect of American history. But because of the political moment that we're in now, because of the disparate impacts realized by the coronavirus pandemic, because of the policing issues that we are experiencing now vis-a-vis -vis George Floyd and so many other racial issues like the fact that uh, so now Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown Jackson had to be hazed for four days in order to take her rightful seat on the Supreme Court when she's overprepared. I think this book is more than a travel book and more than a lifestyle guide. It is an invitation for you to decide what side of history would you like to stand on. It's the Moon Guide, U.S. Civil Rights Trail, a traveler's guide to the people, places, and events that made the movement. Deborah Douglas, thank you for talking with us today. Thanks, Chris. Speaking of Mississippi is a joint production of the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and the Community Foundation for Mississippi. Our opening music comes from a 1942 recording by Sid Hemphill, the most storied black musician in the Mississippi Hills in the early 20th century. Our closing music was recorded in 1939 by Tishomingo County fiddler John Hatcher and included on the 1985 Mississippi Department of Archives and History release, Great Big Yam Potatoes. I'm Chris Goodwin, and thank you for listening to Speaking of Mississippi. <laughs>